0: Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and once again, my fellow commenter Cameron Brooks is not with me. Cameron is on his way back from that grad school residency in Seattle that I mentioned in our last episode, so we will be reunited soon. I'm looking forward to hearing about how that went for Cameron, but until then, I have something kind of special planned for this episode. The question we're going to be thinking about is this, what's missing from the missionary discourse? Matthew chapter 10 contains Jesus' instructions on how to accomplish the mission of proclaiming the kingdom. Here's his big chance to equip us to address whatever he thinks is relevant to that task. Imagine if you had one shot at preparing a new believer for doing the mission of the church well. What topics would you want to address? Well, the odds are, whatever list you come up with, Jesus isn't going to talk about that. As we embark on our study of Matthew 10 at Grace, I want to explore why Jesus doesn't include so many things that, to us, would be obvious points to make. Why does he say what he says instead of what we'd expect him to say? Let's consider what's missing from the missionary discourse and why it's missing and whether there's something we might be missing when it comes to the mission of the church. The new sermon series at Grace is titled The Apostolic Foundation. It's a sermon series focused on Matthew chapter 10, which contains the second of the five great discourses of Matthew's Gospel. The second discourse, unlike the first, which was the Sermon on the Mount, is contained in a single chapter, where the Sermon on the Mount stretched over chapters 5, 6, and 7. Here in chapter 10, we have the entire second discourse, which is often referred to as the missionary discourse. Now, the reason why scholars call it the missionary discourse is because in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles to continue his ministry of proclaiming the kingdom. As he sends them, he gives them instructions on how to carry out that ministry. And so they're essentially being uh, sent as what we might think of as the original missionaries, hence missionary discourse. Throughout the course of this sermon series, we're going to be considering what Jesus' instructions mean, first of all, for the apostles themselves, but secondarily, for us as well, because it becomes clear as you work your way through chapter 10— that the instruction Matthew includes in chapter 10 is not just aimed at the apostles, but also anticipates future challenges which the Church will encounter. And so it's very appropriate for us not only to see lessons for the Twelve, but also lessons for Christians today. Because of the fact that this is the missionary discourse, you might think that of all of the various Uh, compilations of teaching from Jesus that we find in Matthew's gospel, this is going to be one of the most practical. And perhaps because of that, one of the most sought after. Because I think the kinds of questions that people ordinarily have about how to live their faith, about how to talk about the gospel, about how to be Christians in a culture which itself is not Christian— Those are questions which fall under the category or the heading of mission. So if I said to you there is a chapter in the New Testament that is specifically dedicated to giving practical instructions on how to carry out the mission, it would sound like that would be the chapter you've been looking for. A lot of the questions you have, a lot of the blind spots, a lot of the gaps in your knowledge... You would expect to be filled in this chapter. Well, the title of this episode is What's Missing from the Missionary Discourse, and the title should suggest to you that some of the things that you would expect to find in a discourse like this are not actually included in it. And so that's what I'd like to talk about. As we embark on a study of this Missionary Discourse, I want to acknowledge what we might call the elephant in the room, which is the fact that this is a discourse which may not actually address the kinds of questions that we think of as very relevant to the topic of the mission. Think about it this way. Try to imagine what sorts of questions you would like to have Jesus answer when it comes to fulfilling the mission of the church. Or if you had an opportunity to have Jesus teach you how to fulfill the tasks that you as a believer are meant to be doing, wouldn't that be a fantastic opportunity? Like To get hands-on instruction from Jesus himself in how to do these things that we worry about so much, that we argue over so much in terms of, you know, what's the right way, what are the wrong ways to approach the problem? Wouldn't it be great if Jesus could step in and actually teach us himself? Well, this is what chapter 10 of Matthew is all about. He is sending out the 12. He is giving them instruction. He is actually preparing them to do the thing that we've been called to do And so, in this chapter, we get to sit in on Jesus's instruction for this task. Now, when I think about the kinds of questions that I might want Jesus to address, I can come up with a few things, and I imagine you and I would would track similarly. You might have some concerns different than mine and vice versa, but more or less, we would probably want Jesus to talk to us about What's the right way to proclaim the gospel? What's the right way to talk about these things? What are the things we have to include? Wouldn't that be good? To get a kind of uh, list of essentials, like here are the essential elements of the gospel. If you leave these things out, then you're not actually proclaiming the right gospel. So be sure to get these things right. I think another thing it would be good to have Jesus weigh in on might be, you know, some apologetics. Maybe. Jesus could prepare us how to answer common objections that we're likely to encounter or run into as we fulfill this mission. Maybe Jesus could prepare us with some arguments, give us a way to respond to criticisms of the Christian gospel. That would be really helpful. These are the kinds of things that if we were teaching a class on Evangelism, if we were teaching a class on apologetics, we would want to address these kinds of concerns. And so it's natural that we would expect Jesus to touch on things like this as well. When you read chapter 10, however, you will find that our expectations about how you would talk about fulfilling the Christian mission are actually a little bit different from how Jesus talks about fulfilling the Christian mission. There's what we'd want him to teach in that situation, and then there's what he actually does teach in that situation. And that's the difference, or the gap, if you will, that I'd like for us to think about a little bit right now. Before we do that, though, one of the things I'm always suggesting when we embark on a new sermon series is that you spend a little bit of time at the beginning familiarizing yourself with the text as a whole. So we're going to be spending a series of weeks in Matthew chapter 10, but Matthew chapter 10 is not very long. You could actually read it easily in a single sitting and familiarize yourself with its contents. That's actually what I'd like to do right now. We'll take this opportunity to actually do the thing that I'm always encouraging you to do, to take a look at chapter 10. We're going to read through chapter 10 to familiarize ourselves with it. We're going to do it in pieces, and I'll comment a little bit as we go to give you a little bit of orientation and maybe a signal about things to expect in the Sermon Series. So, the first thing you'll observe if you turn in your Bible to Matthew 10, especially if you've got a Bible that has the section breaks and section headings and that sort of thing, is that, at least in the ESV, this text is broken into five sections. So, Matthew 10, we've already looked at the first four verses, which are introductory. So, the discourse itself starts in verse 5, and it continues to verse 42, but it's broken into five big sections. And in this sermon series, we're going to look at one section— per sermon. So, there's going to be five sermons on Matthew 10, and we'll use these same text divisions. So, if you take a look at the first one, which starts in verse 5 and runs through verse 15, here is the actual sending out and the first instructions. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town." Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. We'll pause there for a moment. That's the first section. One of the things that's striking here is that in verse 7 of this section we get what is pretty much the only thing Jesus is going to say about the questions that we would consider most important if you're going to teach us about how to do the mission. Verse seven reads, and proclaim as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the message that they're meant to take is the message of the presence of the kingdom. Remember Matthew refers to the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom. And now, the apostles are going to carry that proclamation out, and they're going to declare the kingdom is here. I don't know about you, but I was expecting to hear a whole lot more about that message, how to proclaim it, what to say, what not to say, all of that kind of thing. But instead, this is all we get, a really quick summary, and then a lot of emphasis on the kinds of things that you might think of as being extraordinarily practical, um, as you go out on your, your mission, uh, should you take money with you? What, what sort of clothing should you pack? How should you expect to sustain yourself on the journey? That sort of thing, everyday concerns like that are being addressed. So now we go to the second section. This picks up in chapter 16, and you'll see, again, the focus is not on what you might expect. We're going to be talking here about the reaction that people have to the proclamation of the kingdom. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. So that's the second section. And as you can see, the focus here is on persecution. The idea that when the kingdom is proclaimed, people will react badly to it, and there will be consequences for those who proclaim it. Punishment, if you will. And here Jesus is preparing them. He's giving them, um, we might say, a correction to their expectations a little bit, and how to deal with those situations. But he doesn't actually tell them what to do or what to say when this happens beyond some basic ideas. In fact, the what to say part, he's he's essentially telling them just leave that to the Spirit. The Spirit will take care of these things. He doesn't give them arguments. He doesn't tell them, you know, what message they should proclaim in this moment. If you find yourself in front of authorities, what should you say to them? None of that is addressed. The Spirit will handle all of that. So now we go to the third section. This section runs from verse 26 through verse 33. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. I do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. That ends the third section, where the focus has been on fear, where you would expect that we would be fearful of those who can persecute us. This section gives encouragement in who you ought to fear, whose power you ought to respect, and whose power you should not fear. And the fear of man is alien to those who proclaim the kingdom, or at least it should be. In the fourth section, we read these words. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, these aren't really the words that you're expecting to hear if the task is to prepare us for the mission. And yet, When I think about what it means, life in Christ, life in the church, and the kinds of experiences, speaking for myself, that I've had personally, I have to say there has been a lot of strife. There has been a lot of division. I've seen families at odds with one another. I've seen exactly the kinds of conflicts that Jesus describes here. So although this isn't the kind of preparation that you're expecting, honestly, it does make sense to me that these are the kinds of words Jesus would speak to us in a moment like this. Finally, in the fifth section, which is from verses 40 through, let's see, the end of the chapter, verse 42, we read these words. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward." So that final section focuses on reward. Even here, I think it's interesting, though, because the rewar- rewards in view here are not rewards for doing things, or at least not rewards for great achievements, which is usually how we think of these things. These are rewards for receiving. These are rewards for hospitality, for welcome. and I think that's interesting as well. Okay, so that's chapter 10. That's the text that we're going to be spending our time with, and just a few observations along the way to orient you. That is how Jesus prepares to send his messengers out to proclaim the presence of his kingdom. So a couple of observations, as I said, we get very little of the kind of thing that we might be expecting would be the main focus, but there's very little practical instruction in how to communicate the gospel, how to answer common objections, how to engage with or relate to the surrounding culture and its mindsets. Mostly the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here seems to be focused on what we might think of as concerns about conduct. So it's not so much how to, how to talk about the kingdom, it's more how to conduct yourself in the course of the mission. Some of these instructions, I think, have a general character, might really speak to just how to live our lives in general as believers. But there are specific things as well, like what to do When you are received, when the message of the kingdom is welcomed. What to do when you are rejected, when the message of the kingdom is not welcome and people turn against it. What to do when people are not willing to hear it, but also when they are actively opposed to it and fight you and and, and actually (laughs) persecute you. How should you conduct yourself there? instructions about that, even to the point of what to do when you are arrested and dragged before the authorities. What's interesting to me about all of that is the instructions in how to conduct yourself, if we had to sum it all up, would be essentially you need to conduct yourself the way that Jesus would. And indeed the way that we'll see in in a few chapters, the way that Jesus does conduct himself in these very situations it underlines an important point about the mission of the church, which is that the mission of the church is not a goal that can be pursued by any means necessary. In other words, the ends do not justify the means. We can't do the wrong thing in the right cause. We can't do the right thing the wrong way. The focus that Jesus has here is not the effectiveness of the message. Jesus is not spending a lot of time equipping the apostles to be successful in their ministry as apostles. What he is doing is addressing how to be faithful regardless of how that mission is received. That, I think, is something really worth reflecting on and meditating on. Because what Jesus is preparing the apostles for, and by extension us, is the actual mission that we've been called to. Whereas I think our questions and our expectations reflect the mission that we imagine that we have been called to. And just as there is a gap between what you would expect Jesus to say in a missionary discourse and what he actually says, oftentimes there is a gap between the mission that we have been called to and the mission that we believe that we have been called to. Think about that. Let that sink in a little bit. Because for me, one of the most important things the text of Scripture can do for those of us who... Are already steeped in Scripture, is to help us unlearn some of our unacknowledged assumptions. I think sometimes we think we know more than we do, and when we read over something in Scripture that seems to challenge something that we take for granted, we tend to gloss over, or not even to notice, that there's any tension. But I want you to notice the tension here. I want you to notice that From our point of view, as 21st century Christians with the kinds of concerns that we have about how to do this mission correctly, something is missing from Jesus' missionary discourse. Now, either Jesus left out things that he ought to have included, or our idea of the mission is not quite the same as Christ's idea of the mission. I think you can guess which of those two options I'm going to urge you to go with. I think Jesus knows exactly what the mission is that he's calling us to and knows exactly what to say to equip us for it. It's just that we don't know, we don't understand, and we often focus on the wrong things. So what you're going to find as we work our way through chapter 10 is that the missionary discourse is preparing you for a slightly different mission than you thought you were on, and that the way to equip you for that mission is a little bit different from what you might have expected. Most of what Jesus is going to be focused on in this chapter, as we've heard, is what we might call preparation a preparation of your mind and of your heart for the experience of the mission. Now, some of that preparation is practical. Jesus prepares the apostles and us for how to navigate uh, proclaiming the message, how to navigate its reception, how to respond to its rejection, things like that. But most of the preparation that we find here is what we would call psychological. That he's equipping us for things that, when they happen, could easily throw us, could easily surprise us, and could easily bring out the worst in us. And because of that, he's letting us know up front what we're facing. He's helping us think through in advance how we should respond to it. And he's equipping us with the right understanding so that we can respond faithfully to these challenges. Reflect on the mission, especially here at the beginning, when the apostles are given this grant of authority from Jesus, and that authority specifically gives them power. It gives them power over the supernatural world in the same way that Jesus, by defeating and binding Satan, can now run roughshod over the demonic world, driving out demons, restoring those who are unclean, healing those who are sick. Now, the apostles will have this same power. And there's something exciting about that. I mean, imagine what it must have been like for the apostles to suddenly be able to do the things that they'd seen Jesus doing, to be in that position. And so that grant of power is something that excites us. And when we think about the life of mission— Oftentimes, the longing that we have is for a similar kind of power. It would be so much easier to follow Jesus faithfully and to proclaim his kingdom and to live in this missional way if you had the same power that the apostles had been given, if you could do the things that they could do, if you had been equipped as they were equipped that's the reason why there are people to this day who are still chasing after those gifts, still desiring the the signs of that uh, apostolic era, uh, hoping to recapture that because they feel like having like to do the mission without those things renders them powerless, and they'd like to have power in order to fulfill the mission. Now you might look at that and and say, well, I mean, I know better than that, but honestly, can't you relate? I think we can all relate to that desire to, to be better at this, to have more power, to have more authority, to be better equipped. I mean, there's a reason why. We want to be told all the arguments. We want to be prepared to answer any objection. We want to have a, a, a bulletproof knowledge of scripture and apologetics. We want all of those things because that is a kind of power. We want to already know when people challenge us what we're going to say and how we're going to answer them because that too is a kind of power. The idea of going on the mission without power is a little bit frightening. And so there you go. That's, that's what we desire a lot of the reason we desire it is because we imagine that with power comes success. So, the reason that we want to have apostolic power is so that we can have successful ministry. We want our mission to be successful, to yield fruits, and we recognize that it can only yield fruits if it has power behind it. But you know what? I think what Jesus does here is he gives us a little bit of a reality check because he is equipping the apostles with power. They will be able to do the kinds of signs and wonders that he has been doing. But is that going to bring about success in the mission? Is it going to give them successful ministries? Well, based on the kind of equipping that Jesus gives them, the answer, at least in human terms, would seem to be no. Jesus is giving them power to do what he's been doing, and he's preparing them for what to do when people don't receive and welcome them, when they are rejected, despite that power. Despite that power, Jesus is equipping them about how to respond when they are arrested, when they are turned over to the authorities. That's with the power. They have the power, and yet, things are still not all going to go their way. They're still going to be subject to persecution, despite having the power. So, throughout this chapter, we see Jesus setting expectations for us. A longing for power is not going to guarantee the success, quote-unquote, of ministry. If anything, having the power granted by Jesus is going to cement the idea that people will treat the apostles the same way they treat Jesus. In other words, as his students, they will be treated the way their teacher is treated. And that's not well. Okay, so that's kind of what I want you to see here in this discourse, the kind of equipping... That Jesus is doing for us is not the sort of equipping that we would expect. It's not the sort of equipping that we might even be looking for. We tend to look for the kind of equipping that prepares us to do what we might think of as effective ministry. The kind of power that we want to have in ministry is the power that would allow us to thrive, to win, to succeed in our ministry goals. But what we see Jesus doing in the missionary discourse is resetting our expectations dramatically. Jesus is telling us that when you proclaim the kingdom as I have called you to do, some will welcome that message. But lots will not, and there will be a great deal of resistance, and you have to be prepared to deal with that resistance faithfully. No matter what people do, you need to respond in a Christ like way. There'll be more than just resistance, too. There will be persecution. There will be consequences for faithfully witnessing to the coming of the kingdom. And you have to prepare yourself for this. But the preparation does not involve fighting fire with fire, it does not involve political organization. It involves a kind of mindset where we recognize that even when we find ourselves in the power of men who would seek to suppress the message of the kingdom, that we have reason not to fear, but instead to hope. So it's a mental equipping. It's an equipping of the heart that is necessary so that we might faithfully endure persecution, not avoid it, which is a very different goal. Jesus also equips us for the inevitable fear that we will feel as we pursue this mission. It's incredible to think that having witnessed everything that they've witnessed and having received the power that they receive from Christ's hand, that the apostles might still encounter resistance, opposition and persecution, and feel fear. And yet they do. Jesus equips them for that reality. He orients them, assuring them that they have nothing to fear, no reason to fear the harm that men can do to them. And he gives the same message to us as well. I've taken plenty of classes on apologetics, evangelism, all sorts of training, in how to do the mission, and I'll tell you, we don't talk nearly enough about the kinds of things that Jesus is talking about here. I'm going to suggest to you that in this brief discourse, Jesus goes farther to prepare us for the actual mission that he has called us to than than a lot of training that you can take that is much more supposedly in-depth and covers much more. So in this chapter, we're going to dig into this preparation from Jesus's lips to equip us for the mission that he has called us to. And I hope that by the end of it, we will recognize one thing, that there is nothing missing from the missionary discourse, that there is no gap here, there is no huge omission or elephant in the room, that Jesus is speaking exactly on topic the important thing is for us to get up to speed and discover what that topic actually is, to discover the exact nature of the mission that we've been called to. That's one thing I hope we will discover throughout this this series, The Apostolic Foundation. So, over the weeks ahead, we can look forward to digging in in more detail, but I want you to reflect on these words as we prepare ourselves to dive in. Thanks for listening to The Commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to The Commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsuefalls.org.